Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we have our second talk from James Jordan on the topic of biblical architecture. This lecture was given several years ago during a course that we had on architecture. And here he discusses many different things, but ultimately ends up focusing on music and how that should influence the type of church buildings that we construct. One quick note, the microphone was a little bit hot for this recording, and so there are times here and there where uh, it peaks. We did the best we could to get most of those out, but there are some still sprinkled throughout the episode. With that, we want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan again speaking on biblical architecture. Uh, Let's begin with prayer. Father in heaven, I ask that you would help me as I teach today to forget anything that's useless and to remember all the things that are useful to these men and women who are here to study your word and your ways. We ask that you would guide all of our thoughts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, we were talking about the tabernacle and how the tabernacle is a formal tent that's made of gold. Uh, It's got all kinds of beautiful stuff in it. And as a matter of fact, it's a portable palace. You know, when uh, good old Darius, King Darius, and the other kings would go to battle, they would take along a tent like this. Big, beautiful tent with tapestries and golden stuff. Uh, and their own throne. And there'd be a throne room in there, and you better not go in there without permission. We see... Uh, you see in the book of Esther that the palace of the great king, Ahasuerus means the great king, uh, the palace of the great king is exactly like God's palace. It's got an inner room that nobody dares to enter. It's got a living room. It's got a garden out of the side. It's got a bride to meet in the garden. And, uh, of course, as all of you know, the king is a model king always consults his wise men before he makes a move. When he gets angry, he consults his wise men and just sends his wife away. In contrast to Haman, who gets angry and decides to massacre an entire people. So you've got a clear contrast in the book, and I won't go any further into Esther, but there's a lot of, there's a lot of geography and, and architecture in Esther. Uh, people... Uh, Ordinary people get to come up to the palace and enjoy a seven-day festival and drink from the golden and silver goblets and eat off the golden and silver plates and walk around on pavement of porphyry and uh, lapis lazuli and all the rest of it, just like they were in heaven for seven days. Up there near the king. Well... And uh, this, this movable uh, palace is God's palace. For this time in history, there is no human king yet. The human beings are not mature enough. They keep going after other gods. Throughout the book of Judges, they keep going after other gods. And what's the rule in Judges? Hey, if you like the Ammonite gods... You're just going to love being ruled by the Ammonites. 
Then they cry out and God delivers them and they go after the gods of the stalagmites. If you love those gods, you're going to love being ruled by them. Oh, we weren't counting on that. And it winds up being the Philistines. And who are the Philistines? Egyptians. We are, oh yes, that's, that's explicit in Genesis chapter 10. Uh, and so we're told it right off the bat. When you're hanging around Philistia, you're in Egypt. That's why when it says the, uh, the Egyptians, the, the Israelites, well, not Israelites, the people of Abraham were ruled by Egyptians for 430 years, we find that there were Philistines around in Abraham's day. They were Egyptians. They weren't bad back then. They came there by way of Greece, according to Genesis chapter 10. And so they're doubly sphinxy. Uh, so when, when, uh, when uh, Samson is dealing with them, uh, those of you who have my commentary on Judges know it's all kinds of sphinxy stuff. He kills a lion. What comes out of the lion? When the Philistines have been defeated, what's going to come out of the lion's dead body? Honey. The land will once again become a land that flows with milk and honey. And what's the contest? A riddle contest. So a contest of power and of garments and a contest of riddles. So we're definitely in sphinxy territory there, behind the scenes there in the Bible. You don't have to know that to get that out of the passage. But it shows you what the Philistines would have heard when they heard this story. Oh, Samson is a tougher sphinx than any of our sphinxes. Um, we're just mice to him. He pounces on us. And that brings us to the labyrinth down here at the bottom of page two. Uh, those of you who have the ancient uh, reconstruction of the church volume have an article in there by James Michael Peters on church architecture. And he talks about uh, the Baptist theater style architecture, which what we call theater style now, and the modern uh, television studio style architecture. And then he goes back into ancient architecture. And go the one I showed you yesterday, Reconstruction of the Church, I'll, I'll give you a copy. Um, and if, if you go into uh, the Church of Holy Wisdom in Byzantium, you're going to walk a labyrinth. You don't walk a straight line into the church. Only the emperor does. You have to go this way. You know, we do this in Russia. Uh, there are no doorways into any buildings in Russia. There are two doorways. It's too darn cold to just have one doorway. So you've got this row of doors to get into the theater and another row of doors to get into the theater. And they're all locked but one. <laughs> this is Soviet style. Still there. And you go through this door, outer door, and then you have to go down here past all these other locked doors and go through this one to get actually into the warm area, which is the foyer of the Shostakovich Symphony or wherever you're going. Anywhere. It's labyrinthine. Now, 
to make have people go through convoluted things is holy. And that's because, I don't have this down anywhere, but at some point we have to say it, straight lines and circles and parabolas, only human beings do those. No animal makes a straight line. But little kids like them. Uh, it's a priestly thing. It is a uniquely priestly, kingly, image of God thing to do to draw straight lines, squares, and circles. Tabernacle is full of squares, cubes, and various other shapes, which are in context holy objects because God dictated them. And where do they come from? I want somebody to tell me where we learn these straight lines from. See who remembers all the stuff from previous... Mm -hmm. Ezekiel, where? Ah, angels only move in straight lines. North, south, east, west, up, down. That's how the chariot moves. And when the chariot becomes flesh, at the end of Ezekiel, alpha, omega, beginning, matches the end. When it becomes architecture, it's all straight lines. Okay? That's how angels march. And that's how I, as an acolyte in the Lutheran Church, learn to walk. Okay? I've got my candle. And I walk straight forward, down to the front. I turn. I face this candle. I light it. I turn. I'm not going to be an Anglo-Catholic and bow to that cross. And I'm going to light this candle. And then I turn. I go out to the middle. I snuff my candle. I turn about face. I walk straight down here. And then I walk straight over here to where my chair is. I was taught that when I was seven. Okay? That's the way the minister walked. It's the way the choir walked. It's the way you walk in church. Better. If I visit your church, oh, I've got my my melancholic, prophetic, always dis in, always never satisfied. Have me into your church, and I will tell you everything that's wrong with it. Okay, what what is the secret of the labyrinth? Is that down at the center of the labyrinth, you you walk. Generally, you're on an axis. Oh, yeah. What in the world? You know, it's bad enough that it's not a chalkboard and I have to use these slippery, slidey, awful things. Okay. It's generally on a north-south-east, north-south-east-west axis, but you're going to start and you're going to Go out and make a labyrinth. And if this looks kind of like a swastika, that's because that's what it is. A swastika is an ancient Christian symbol as well as an everywhere else symbol of the center of the world. Okay? 
And if you're going to get down here to the center of things, you might not want to. Because what's down at the center? What's down in there? It's underground. What's down there? The Minotaur. The monster. And uh, you might not be able to find your way back out, so you better have a girlfriend to give you uh, uh, some string so that you can follow it back out. Not little seeds. Uh, that, was, that was the mistake that Hansel and Gretel made. Uh, no, you want a string. And when you get down there, you've got to kill that minotaur. You have to kill the monster. Then you can come back out. So that's what Jesus did, right? Foolishness to the Greeks because the Greeks heard the story and they said, you're t telling us that Jesus went down and he just let himself be killed by the minotaur? Yeah, that's the gospel. Jesus let himself be killed by the monster. Doesn't sound like a good story to us. That's not the way the story is supposed to, to work, but because of that, Jesus destroyed the labyrinth and it's not really there anymore. And so if you go to some older churches, you'll find right under the central dome, a labyrinth on the floor, and you know you can walk right over it. Oh, there might be one by the door coming in. You can walk right straight over it. Yeah. That's okay. It's just for fun, though, now. It's just for fun. Numbers chapter 10 let me just point this out to you because I'm not going to explore it. I have a paper on this, but no, we'd be here till eight nine o'clock tonight if I tried to go over it all because it's very, there's a whole lot of stuff there. Numbers 10, verse 11, came about in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th of the month, cloud was lifted up over the tabernacle of the testimony of the Ten Commandments, the sons of Israel set out on their journeys from the wilderness of Sinai. They moved out for the first time. The standard of the camp of the sons of Judah, according to their army, set out first. With Nashon, the son of Amenadab, over its army, and Nethanel, the son of Zuar, over the tribal army of the sons of Issachar, and Eliab, the son of Helen, over the tribal army of the sons of Zebulun. And then the tabernacle was taken down, and the sons of Gershon and the sons of Merari, who were carrying the tabernacle, set out next. So let me just start you on this journey. Because we want to have this up here anyway. Here's the tab. I'm going to put the east over here where it belongs. And that's the tabernacle. And here's the court. And the court's all around here. We won't draw it to scale. And up here on the east. What did I say? Yes, this is east. We're moving west. Up here at this corner, all of your books are going to show Judah in the center. But no Judah's on the corner. He's here. And so he peels out on the march. And after him is a car. And after him, whoever's next. And then, all the boards and all that kind of stuff is taken down by who? See, I can't even remember this. Uh, Gershon and Marerai carry the tabernacle and all of its stuff. So, all of this stuff goes down 
next. And then these tribes here peel off. Okay, Reuben, who should not be here, of course, in the sky, the man constellation is here opposite the bull. But Judah and Reuben have switched places because of Reuben's sin. So the lion is now here and the man, unstable as water, who's pouring out water, is down here. Reuben and his tribes follow. And then the next group of Levites comes. What happens is, as these people get to the new place, they set it all up. Okay, one thing after another. And then the next group comes and they put the furniture inside. Uh, well, the priests come last of all. They put the furniture inside. And this, this is a labyrinthine construction. Okay? And if you're going to visit, you're going to go through the tribe of Reuben. And then, I didn't draw everything here. Aaron is here. Then you're going to go through the tribe of Aaron. And then, if you're clean, you can come into the courtyard. So even here, a certain amount of ducking and weaving to get in to the tabernacle space. I just want to call your attention to this passage. It will be on the test. You will be expected to list these tribes in order and precisely what things are carried by which tribes. That's in chapter 4. And what color of, uh, of robe is put over each of the, each of the items. Right? They shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a what colored cloth on it? Purple. They shall take the utensils of service and put them inside a blue cloth and cover them with a covering of dolphin uh, dugong skin and put them on carrying pars. Aren't you happy that I'm really not going to ask you all that? But it's interesting that that's all there. And it's all fun. And all of your junior high school kids would love to act all this out and have their own tabernacle that they build and have a little paper mache lamb that they sacrifice. And they would know this stuff. And you can put in their slots every day. You've got a white spot on your arm. You better go see your priest. So the seventh grader goes to see the eighth grader who's his priest. And he has a little, a little piece of paper in his thing that says, Yep, Billy is leprous. Oh, Billy, sorry. You have to sit over in the leprous corner in the uh, lunchroom. And you're not allowed to go to the Coke machine. You'll have to get somebody else to go to the Coke machine for you. You know, all kinds of ways to make this real so they know it. And if you had a generation of people who knew it, they're not going to do it. But they're going to think it. And we'll come back to that in a minute. Because we're not going to come back to it. I'm going to say it now in case I'm sick tomorrow. We don't, when we read about the tabernacle and the temple and Ezekiel's temple, which was never going to be built anyway, 
we're not going to build those. Nobody ever worshipped in those. The people didn't go inside those. The priests went inside those and did certain things. But they were not for gathered worship. So when you build a church, you're not going to be looking back at this architecture in the Bible and saying, oh, we'll do this, we'll do that. Because you're not. So what good is it? And that's the evangelical question. Okay, what good is it? Now, we don't need to study that. Only fundamentalists and dispensationalists study that with their flannel graphs. They're the only people who bother to study this stuff. And they do. Good for them. Back in the days when Calvinists were compromising, the fundies were standing firm on a lot of things. So my hat's off to them. I am one. I'm a fundie. Okay. But seriously, um, what we learn is what God likes. What we learn is to think the way God thinks. What does God like? He likes fire. He likes having fires inside of his palace. So why don't we have candles in our church? Oh, we've got electric lights now. Well, great. And you go to some of these Catholic churches and they've got little electric candles. You know. Okay. You want beeswax? Smells good. You don't want tallow? It's going to smell like an animal after a while. All right. Learn that from watching Elizabeth. <laughs> uh, but God likes fire. God likes color. Why is it in our churches the darkest place in the room is down front? You come in and your eye is drawn to the front. A black hole. The pastor comes in. Black robe. Black three-piece suit. He goes into a gigantic pulpit. Darkest wood around. There's an altar down there. Do this in memory of me. The incorrect translation. Do this for my memorial. But it's the darkest wood around. Is there a white curtain, white cover on it? According to Presbyterian law, there's supposed to be. But usually there isn't. Is there any candles on it? Any color? The walls are painted white. But the darkest place in the room is down front. Should not be that way. Glorifying the center is one of our principles. This is the center of Israel. This is where all shining metal, gold stays shining. And when we have the temple, we've got those two bronze statues, Yachin and Boaz, with their pomegranates and their lily. Shoshanim, two male lilies. And the great bronze sea covered with a Shoshan oath, female lilies. Meet our bride at a, at a well. The well of water is the woman and the two bronze pillars. What color are those bronze pillars? They're green. That's what copper becomes. Nice green lilies. God likes smells. 
He likes a nice compound. I read you the passages yesterday. He likes things to smell good. So do you. You like colors. Look at how you're dressed around this room. Why are you dressed in colors? Why do you care? Guys, why does your wife care? Alright? You can't go out looking like that. That doesn't match. That striped tie does not go with that check shirt. What, what's wrong with it? Trust me, you can't wear that. Alright. We care about colors. We like them. We have to hurt ourselves to build a church that is colorless. That doesn't have a nice smell. You want to sell your house? What do you do? Bake bread. Why? Make it smell good. You get these little things you plug in the wall and make your room smell good. Or they kill mosquitoes. One or the other. All right? In Russia, they kill mosquitoes. They do a lot better than anything else. All right? You like this stuff. When you have people over to your house for dinner, when you got married, didn't somebody give you a pair of candlesticks? Don't you put candles on your table? Maybe people don't always anymore, but that's still what we think of. Flowers on the table. Candles on the table. Why not put flowers on God's table? As Schmemann says, it's just a sign of love. There's something wrong with love. God likes those things, and that's why we as His image like them. And we have to hurt ourselves to get rid of them. So that's something we learn from the tabernacle. One other thing is that all this stuff in here is royalty. This, they're all thrones. This is the, this is the altar of incense. It has a crown around the top. When you read the description of it. This is the table of face bread. It has a crown around the top. It all represents people. You can't go in there. But the symbol of you is this altar of incense. You at prayer. And you're made of wood because you're a creature of the earth. Wood comes out of the earth overlaid with gold. And gold comes from heaven. You heard this today. How much gold is in the tabernacle? You all have to know this. You can remember it. There's two years worth. Two times 365. 730 talents. There are two solar years of gold in this. It's made of two suns. And how much silver? Well, I can't remember the number, but there are five lunar years. Five lunar years. 355 times five. That's how much silver is in here. So, seven suns, and five, seven and five, you know that comes up a bunch of times in the Bible. Five loaves and two fish. What did I say? Seven, five, I'm getting confused. Okay. Five moons and 
Two sons. Moons are feminine. Women are lunar. Nowadays, they try not to be. They say the men and women are the same. Well, they're not. A lingerie store in your, in your a section in your store will tell you they're not. There's an interesting verse in the Bible when the uh, wife of uh, the Shunammite woman, when her son is killed, sunstroke, she goes to her husband and says, I have to go see the prophet. And he says, why? It's not the new moon. Why would he say that? Why would the Holy Spirit record it? It's the real question. Why are you supposed to know that there's something new moonish? The new moon at the new moon festival, there's a meeting every new moon. Seems to be associated with women. Weird. I wonder why that would be. Okay. Well, it's just that men don't think monthly, and women do. You know, women are going to, women, I'm not prepared to talk about this. Um, I'm sorry, I'm going by memory. But uh, who makes sure that Christmas happens in your house? Your wife. Okay? Who remembers the things that are supposed to be remembered during the year? You don't. All, all times the same for men, they're so flat. Okay? But women are even more uh, monthly because of their biology. Because of the nature of the way they reflect who God is. God likes months. That's one of His rhythms. Suns are one. And suns and moons don't go together. That's why we have all these extra days. And they never will. In a million years, suns and moons are never going to link up. There's no, no mathematical formula you're ever going to come up with. Because contrary to the Greeks, there are no circles in reality. Planets don't go around the earth in circles. And there's no circular time. It's all a paisley universe. And when you dig down in it, there's all these paisleys underneath everything. And the farther down your microscope, go, microscope goes, the more paisleys you see. Nothing fits together in some nice circular or straight line way. All right. So these are you. You get to be in here in front of God in His living room, relaxing, smelling His incense, His potpourri, having some bread, being bread. These are all thrones. This is a throne for incense to sit on. This is a throne for bread to sit on. This is a throne for lamps to sit on. And this in, out here, the ark, is a throne for this slab of gold, which is the firmament, and it has angels, and for God to sit on. Alright? These are thrones. Golden thrones. They're you. Some of you are more inclined toward praying for others. Some of you are always giving stuff out. Some of you like to boss other people around your lampstand. Some of you like to bring others to Christ. You are the altar out here 
that brings people in. You see, this is the in-group here. All fat, dumb, and happy loaves of bread enjoying being here. Okay? Did I say in-group? Yeah. This is the out-group. This altar out here bringing, uh, facing out. I'm sorry, this is the... I can't do this. Okay? There are four functions here. You figure it out. Which one you are. Alright? This is the way it is. This is what these things mean. And we could talk about a, a, continue to talk about it a very long time. Any questions about the tab? Because we're going to go to the temple. It's different. The temple, contrary to all the pictures that you see in your Bible, has no steps going up into it. There are no steps going into the doorway. There are no steps leading up into the Holy of Holies, which is still a cube inside, only eight times as big as the one in the tabernacle. The temple includes a pavement outside of it that extends to the palace of the king. The palace of the king is part of the furniture of God's temple. And in 1 Kings chapter 6 and 7, the temple is built. All the stones and the shell of it is built and it's finished. And then after six years and for the next 13 years, the palace of the king is made, the house of the trees of Lebanon is made, and the walls outside are made, and all the furniture inside are made, and all the silver lampstands that are outside are made, and all the extra golden lampstands that are inside are made. All the furniture is made, and the palace of Solomon is part of the furniture of the temple. Once that happens, wine can come in, the king can have wine, and he can sit down. Because the priests are always standing up, the king gets to sit down. Adam has now become king. Solomon says, I'm just a child. I need knowledge of good and evil. God says, because you asked for wisdom, I'll give it to you. That's what knowledge of good and evil is. The ability to do what God did. God saw that it was good. Can you do that? Goo goo gaga. I don't even have any clothes on yet. I'm still a baby. My senses have not yet been trained to exercise good and evil, as Hebrews says. But once I'm old enough, God can put this robe on me that's got all this gold thread on it. You know, you've got to have, you've got to, holding up that robe, you're not, if you're not old enough or strong enough to have that robe on, it'll crush you. And that's what it did to Adam and Eve. So now, at last, the human race has decided to put away all the other idols. You don't find that Israel is going after other gods during the kingdom era. What is their sin? The second commandment, they want to worship God through man-made objects. Okay, That's the sin of the second era. But at least they've got God right. And so for that reason, they can have a king and a palace 
and architecture can change. Well, yeah, it, uh, Ahab, you get a reversion to actual covenantal idolatry. It's not just liturgical idolatry. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's mostly iconolatry. Okay, after the exile, do we ever see anybody going after other gods or making high places? No. What's the sin then? Hypocrisy. The third commandment, worshiping God in a strange way, perverting who God is and what we see in the Gospels. Okay, so each of these eras has its own architecture appropriate to the age and growth of the human race. And I'm, I'm saying this, Take it in, think about it yourself, because I can't spell it all out. Once you get a king, you get music. What is, what is Saul's job? As soon as Saul was anointed king to be, what happened to him as he came down from the high place? He encountered a group of prophets. What were they doing? Playing musical instruments. What was Saul supposed to do as king? Come on now, we can't have the same person answering all the questions and looking down at the table is not going to save your soul. He's supposed to organize them and he's supposed to perfect them. Instruments don't naturally play together. You know why there's no such thing as a concerto for bagpipes and orchestra? <laughs> because bagpipes don't play the same way instrumentals. And the instruments in the orchestra have all been perfected to play together. That's an am amazing thing. You have small groups of instruments in non-Christian cultures, a gamelan orchestra or a group of bagpipes uh, in Eastern Europe, you know, 20 bagpipes playing together. <laughs> I've heard it. It does make you laugh. But you perfect the instruments. That's why it talks about David perfecting these instruments. All right? And, uh, but that, uh, Saul didn't do it. Now, what is music for? What can it do? What is its kingly task? David came out one day. One day there was this Goliath guy who came out and challenged Israel. The king was from the tribe of Benjamin. What is the weapon of the tribe of Benjamin? Slingshot. Little old David shows up. And he's from Judah, but he's behaving like a Benjamite, right? He's got a slingshot. And he kills the giant. That shows you the king at war. Or does it? What happened in the chapter before that? That's in chapter 17. What happened in chapter 16? David played for Saul and defeated demons. If you want to defeat human enemies, the first thing you do is defeat your demonic enemies. 
And you do that by singing psalms. Gosh, Jim, you're just a broken record. Psalms, psalms, psalms. Well, it's taken me this long to realize how important they are. You want to change the face of Arrakis? You want to change the United States? Better have churches getting up, to get, getting together behind closed walls and singing psalms. And the demons will fall from heaven and you'll wind up with a change in government that you didn't know would happen. Now let me just show you something in case you're saying, Jim, you're just making this up. Yeah, I am. In 1 Chronicles chapter 25, Chronicles is the music books. 1 Chronicles. That's in here. The very first verse in 1 Chronicles 25. Listen to this. Would you have ever dreamed this was in the Bible? Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jedathan, who were to prophesy with lives, harps, and cymbals. Who organized the music in the church? The commanders of the army. Well, this is America. We have separation of church and state. Well, all right. Music is still a military sign. And as a matter of fact, it still is. If you have a battalion of men out there, you're going to have a band. You can't march without one. Okay. You still have music with the military, but it's not viewed the same way. And of course, you remember that over in Chronicles, it says that the king brought out the musicians and they played and the enemy all fell upon each other and ran away. The army didn't have to do anything. No. Charismatics love that verse. Well, there was a time when Calvinists loved that verse. What is the battle hymn of the Calvinist Reformation in France? The battle hymn of the Huguenots. What is it? Boy, I'm really testing you now. Which Psalm? 68. Let God arise and by His might put all His enemies to flight. All right. The French government outlawed singing that. The king outlawed it. The Catholics were so afraid when they'd hear the French churches with their windows open blasting that out. There weren't any musical instruments. They were just singing it, you know, without harmony, nice and loud. And it's what they sang as they went into battle against the Catholics, you know, when they fought. So they started going around whistling it. And the government outlawed whistling it. That was a dinnertime story when I was growing up. <laughs> when your father's a professor of French literature. But, you know, that was how he did it. Struck terror just to hear the melody. And that's what David did. And we're not told that David sang anything and drove the demons away, just that he played. Played with his hand. With his hand, it says three times, he played with his hand. He played with his hand and the evil spirit went away. Blessed be the Lord who teaches my fingers to fight. How do your fingers fight? Playing the instrument. 
Okay. So music. When we get to heaven, when Jesus ascends to heaven, the angels stop saying, holy, holy, holy. And they pick up their harps and they start singing, holy, holy, holy. When the king comes, he is now a man sitting on a throne. A man is now in heaven. A man has now ascended to the throne. So it's not just God's temple anymore, the tabernacle, palace. It's now both. Now, this is a period of time that we're talking about here. A period of time that started... It's all coming off, guys. Better get it copied real fast. All these royal people who are not really there, but are represented by gold. Crowns. You guys. This history started at Ur the Chaldees. And Abraham went into the land. And then we went down to Egypt. And then we came up north into the land. Or I should draw this here. And then what happened? We went into exile to America, right? Nope, to Ur. Right back where we started. And now I'm going to tell you something that is a great secret. Now you want to know a secret? That's the end of the Abrahamic promise. People say, God gave the land to Abraham. Yeah, He did. And He took it away right here. That's it. Oh, the land still belongs to Israel. No, it doesn't. They lost it when they went back to Ur the Chaldees. Because we did not come back to the land. We went forward to a new place. What is this place when Abraham gets here? What's the name of it? The land of promise. promise. What's this land? The land that flows with milk and honey. After Ur, where did we go? New place. No Davidic king. We didn't get a Davidic king again. We didn't get a temple we could look at. We went to the Holy Land. And the Holy Land is fairly small. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. Here's our lakes here. And the Holy Land is just here and here. Galilee, Judea, and Samaritans are here. We don't have that part. Strangers, people who try to prevent us from building in Nehemiah's day. Well, the original land was way out here. We can get that back. That's over, really. Now, of course, the truths that are there, spiritual realities are still there. But when you start looking at it from a historical, physical point of view, 
Ezekiel is uh, Ezekiel's temple can't be built. Ezekiel's temple is full of steps leading into it. It is a symbolic description of a holy land and there are stairways leading up to every level. And the altar itself is a stepped pyramid. This is how the altar looks. The height of the altar is the same as the floor of the temple itself. And to get into the temple, we have sets of stairs that get into each level. So this is a pyramid. It's a big, wide pyramid, and it is the mountain of God. Ezekiel is taken up to a very high mountain, and he looks and he sees this off in the distance. What did Isaiah say a couple of hundred years earlier? The mountain of the Lord will be exalted as the highest of all the mountains, and all the nations will flow into it. And so you begin to read the description of the Ezekiel's temple and there's all this stuff about people flowing into it. From the north and from the south, they're walking through. Then you go to Daniel and you find out that there's a king of the north and the king of the south. And throughout this period, there are conflicts between the north and the south. And Gentiles are marching through these areas. And symbolically speaking, they're going through here. What is symbolized is corresponds to reality. Now, you can't go in there because it's not built on the earth and it's never going to be. And what is built in Ezra and Nehemiah, people look at it and say, whoa, we thought it was going to be really neat and it's just kind of a ragtag. This is trailer, trailer park temple we're building here. Doesn't amount to much. You know? I mean, it's a double wide, but it's still not very cool. And they cry. Well, they didn't understand. Don't you see? This is the reality. Open your eyes. I see men like trees walking. Let me touch them again. Oh, now I see. So the Abrahamic covenant has ended, but something really neat has come. And what has come is the international covenant. It's no longer a covenant with one nation on behalf of everybody else. When was the internationalization of the covenant begun? With? Not with the exile. Before the exile. And it was begun at Mount Sinai. With whom? You know. <laughs> yeah, you do. You know. Okay. With Elijah. What did God say? Go and anoint Hazael, king over Syria. Anoint a Gentile king. Pour the holy anointing oil on a Gentile king. Messiah, that's the word Mashiach. God is extending his stakes to all these other nations. And so Elisha 
goes to Damascus and they tell the king, Elisha's here. Oh, send for him. I want to talk to him. Remember that story? Because all the nations know. They all know. And the, the prophets start sending letters out to all these nations. Just read the prophets. There's sections where that are sent to the other nations. God is put, extending his stakes. Jonah goes to Assyria. Who are you? They know who he is. That's why it only takes three days. So now that is sort of the, the uh, before it really comes into effect, period. Uh, Elijah, the, the Elijah prophetic covenant period is kind of like the Abrahamic period. And then we go into exile. We went into Egypt. We went into exile. We came out of Egypt and we had the tabernacle. We come out of Ur and we have Ezekiel's temple. And we have the tabernacle when God alone is king and there are no human kings. And then we come to the temple. We come out of Ur the Chaldees the second time. We have Ezekiel's temple when God alone is king. And then we come to Jesus when the kingdom period begins. And that's when we are now. We are not in the Abrahamic phase of history, one nation representing all the, all the rest. We are in the all-nation phase, in the kingdom part of that. All right. Now, what during this, period, this first phase of the international covenant? All right, the second phase. First phase is Elijah, which is kind of like Abraham. We're calling on these nations to come, just as Abraham did all kinds of evangelism. What is the climax of the Abraham story? I will make your name great, says God. Abraham, father of many. Hey, what's your name, old guy? Abraham, father. Oh, father of many. How many kids do you have? Oh, we don't have any yet, but we got high hopes. How old are you? You look like you're about a hundred. You haven't made my name great. You've made it ridiculous. That's the story. Carry that name by faith. People laughing at you behind your back. You know, the guy is telling us the truth about God and I really love him, but there's a screw loose up there. He keeps calling himself father of many. He doesn't have any kids. I'll make your name great. You've made it ridiculous. What is the last? What is the last? The last thing we read is the the Hittites say, "You are the greatest among us. You are God's prince in our midst." Your Bible says, "Mighty prince." It says, "Prince of El, God's prince." You taught us the truth. We want to give you any property you want. Take it. That's, that's what's going on behind our back that we don't know about. But, okay, that's the first phase. Now when we get to this new phase, how are we, what are we called to do in the Ezekiel phase? What is weird about Ezekiel's 
temple. And you have a hymn that sings about it. Deeper all the way. Perfect yet it floweth. Deeper all the way. Okay, Ezekiel's river. We no longer have a little laver. We no longer have this great bronze sea and other chariots of water. We have a river and it's flowing out. And who is this river? Well, it says in Zechariah, I have spread you forth as the four winds of heaven. What? We don't have an army. There's, there's no Joab. There's no army. How, how are we going to conquer the world? How do you do it? What was the first thing that we did to conquer the world before we had an army? Evangelism, right? Hmm. No, there was a group that really understood this in the 19th century. General William Booth. Right? Music. Tell you what, if we could go to these Islamic countries and walk through the streets with a marching band singing, they'd probably kill us. They can't whisk, they can't hold on to that. Psalm 137 is the big key here. Is that they go off into Babylon and the Babylonians say, Hey, sing us one of those songs of Zion, man. We've heard about that. You know what it's like? We've heard that as you, as you get near to your city, Jerusalem, you hear all this great music coming out. You've got three or four hundred men, three or four hundred men singing. And all three or four, two or three hundred instruments playing, all in tune, all at once. That's unknown. They don't have that in Cambodia. And they didn't have that in Ur of the Chaldees. It was the wonder of the world. And it came out off of that top of that mountain and it went all over the place. You could hear it. And we wanted to come up and hear it. And we want to hear one of those songs. But we've hung our harps on the willows. Who are we? Who have harps? Levites have harps. And we hung them on the willows. Because we don't know how to sing the Lord's song in a strange land. Well, how do you? Well, the next psalm answers it. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. And the psalms continue to answer it. The next several psalms were written by David when he was in exile. <laughs> All right, if they were written in exile, then we can sing them in exile. World conquest comes through singing and music making. And it's just amazing how it's all set out there. And they really want to hear it. They like to hear it. So you go to the symphony and you hear, a, you hear Shostakovich's 10th symphony. Really profound, really beautiful work. Man who wasn't a believer, but he could never have written that if it hadn't been for medieval plain chant and organum. And then after that, motets. And then after that, Bach. And then after that, Haydn, Papa Haydn, devout Christian, who invented the symphony. We conquered the world. So what's that got to do with church architecture? It's got 
Our church architecture has got to be something that creates a congregation who sings, not with a stage down front with a trap set for a band to play. Okay. And we have to be careful about that. And we have to think about that. If you have a choir, how much do you want to give to the choir? And how much do you want to make sure your congregation can sing? I'm a great believer in congregational singing. I don't care if you have a choir or not. But if you do, what are you going to use that choir for? Let's talk about that. If, if music is how we conquer, you want to put them in the back to where they can help the congregation sing. You want to put them in the front where they entertain the congregation. I have an idea. Let's put them on the side to where they can sing antiphonally with the congregation. We don't want to have time today to look at the city of Revelation, but you can. In Revelation, there are all these antiphonal choirs singing back and forth. All right? So we do these psalms. What if you divided the psalms up? Line one, line two, line three, line four. Choir, congregation. Choir, congregation. Back and forth. Mm, 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 mm. Yeah. Go into a Lutheran church and you'll see that. There may be room in the back for a choir for some purposes, but usually the, the uh, singing of psalms will be between the congregation and the choir. And uh, they still have a little bit of that left, even though they're liberal dogs. Uh, they still show some of it. Uh, so how you, how you construct your room for, for music is important. Okay, because music is important. It's how the world is conquered. It's how we are transformed. And the church really has already know, always known this. And I guarantee you, these young people who go to these churches that have coffee bars in the back and where worship consists of standing and going back and forth like they're at a dance, you know, hanging around the band while the band sings, and they mumbled something, they came to your church and everybody was singing, they would really be attracted to it. I know this. Because when I was in college, which I will tell you, I'm describing the year 1967. I met all these Baptist friends in college and at Campus Crusade meetings. Where do you go to church? Well, <clears throat> I go to a Lutheran church. Lutheran church? What's that? Well, this is a little bit different from what y'all do, but you're welcome to come. Okay, where, where do you meet? Well, one Sunday, all my Baptist friends are there. And after it was over, they said, Golly, Jimmy. That was my name back then. It's not my name now. <laughs> oh, doomed. We come in and nobody's talking to anybody. People are all sitting down praying. Some people are standing up. And then everything was sung. Every, if the minister said something, the congregation sang back. The minister didn't sing his part.
That's really pretty rare. You hear us do it here, but if I'm saying it and you're singing back, that's what they heard. And there were all these songs. It was like Gloria in, ex, Gloria in Excelsis. Is that what it says there? Man, we could, that was, and everybody was singing them so loud. Wow. And afterwards, everybody was so friendly. Hey, how you doing? I said, well, something weird about this? It's <laughs> the so way I was growing up. Candles, colors. I discovered several of my friends, even after I quit as choir director and my brother quit as organist because we had a liberal pastor and we were tired of it. And we just stopped going there and started going to the Big Biscuit on Sunday morning, Church of the Inner Springs, and going to Campus Crusade meetings in the afternoon. But uh, I had friends of mine were still going over there for a liturgical fix. Because they, they just love the music so much. The same music we're singing here, most of it. The glory and excelsis that we sing here is exactly what I grew up with and what they heard. And they said, wow, that was so neat. Well, I guess our time is up. One last thing I want to say because it's down here. Uh, well, Revelation's architecture. In Revelation, we have a description of a whole bunch of things that we're not ever going to do. We're not going to have vast choirs like this. There's no way we could have them all sing at once. We don't have that kind of space. We can't float around in the air. Oh, we can't build that city. So why are we given that symbol? The symbol changes how we think. In the New Age, the curtain is torn. We all draw near. And so, women can draw near. There's an argument about whether women sang in the Levitical choir or not. I believe that after the exile they did. I believe it says so in Nehemiah. But uh, I think anybody could sing in the Levitical choir. If you had a good voice, you just go get yourself adopted into a family of Levites and be counted there. We see this in Chronicles, uh, names of people who have double genealogies. You know, Samuel is adopted into a Levitical family, but he's also got his original family um, from whichever tribe it was. So we design our churches with the Eucharistic table at the center and an aisle leading down to it and <laughs> in uh, you know, people on either side of it and choir somewhere and we glorify the center. And I do hope to talk about this some tomorrow, but all of this stuff in the Bible is there to show you things about God, not things you're supposed to do. But ways, new ways to think. And I know that sounds kind of Gnostic, but as a man thinks, so is he. And uh, we have to think this way about God. And then what we build is built in an honoring fashion. Comments, questions, arguments. You can disagree with me. You've been wrong before. 
It has to be there. It's in Exodus 38. Exodus 38, 24. Gold of the wave offerings, 29 talents. I said talents. That's wrong. 730 shekels. According to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is one gira heavier. Sanctuary shekels are heavier. Sanctuary cubits are longer than the ordinary ones. And the silver was 100 talents and 1,775 shekels, which is five lunar years. And then there's more stuff here, more stuff to think about what they were used for. Of the 1,775 shekels, he made hooks for the pillars and overlaid their tops and made bands. The 100 talents of silver were for, ca 100 talents were for casting the sockets of the sanctuary and the sockets of the veil. Hmm. Why is that distinction there? Why is it important? Why do you need to know it? Why does the Holy Spirit think it's important? One other thing I want to say here, in case it has escaped your attention, if you decided you were going to draw what the tabernacle looked like, you won't. There's not enough information. You don't know the shape and size of the labor of cleansing. We're not told whether it was eight-sided or round, or how big it was, how much water it contained. All we know is that it rested on a pedestal because it represents the heavenly waters, the firmament and the heavenly waters above. That's all we know. And it was made out of the mirrors of the deaconesses. That's all we know about it. And if you wanted to make the tabernacle and draw out the walls, you'll find you don't have enough information to know how to do the corners. You don't. You can't do it. And if you want to draw the tent on top, every picture that you see in Bibles shows the goat's hair tent resting on top of the no, I guarantee it didn't look like that. It was there to keep water off. Um, I do have one book that shows a hypothetical way of making it go up and like a cloud, like a gray cloud over there to shed water off. And inside of it, you would see this golden fire inside the cloud. Fire inside the cloud, just like Ezekiel. So I like it. And I liked what Peter said last night. You've got a cube with a pyramid inside of it. Well, that's what the tabernacle is, right? I showed you. Tabernacle, and there's a ladder to heaven hidden inside of it. Yeah. Yeah. No. The, the, the outer poles that hold up the clouds. The holy place has silver sockets and gold boards 
and gold rings at the top to run the pole through. No, there's, there's no bronze. There's no bronze inside heaven at all. Bronze is earth. Bronze is only out in the courtyard. You have an altar rising up. That's the holy mountain rising up out of the earth. And the tabernacle is on top of it. What this thing really looks like, Peter, just yell if, if I'm going too long. But See, we had an Exodus class and we got some of this done. I know some of you weren't there. But it really looks like this. This altar out here, I cannot draw. That's the holy mountain. And it's got the fire on it. And this fire includes this smoke. Includes this. This is in heaven. It's stacked on top of it. Okay? The sacrifice goes up to where God is. And there's an altar of incense here. And the incense goes up and makes another cloud around God's house. So that, that's what you remember. This is silver, which reaches gold, is bronze, bronze, earthly stuff, that reaches up to silver. And silver is the firmament between heaven and earth. And then built on this silver sockets is all the gold which is heavenly. There's no gold out here. There's no bronze in here. But to represent human beings around God, we have things made of wood and covered with gold. Glorified wood. You. You don't look like gold now, but you will. When we look at Jesus in the, in the book of Revelation, you know how He's described in chapter 1, all the same stuff is there. And the Jesus description in chapter 1 of Revelation then becomes architecturally expanded to be the standard by which everything else is measured in the book. Okay? He has feet of bronze. He has this, He has that, He has this. The seven things that are said about Him there are the seven sections that describe uh, the city at the end. Because the bride's city is made to fit the groom. So all of these correspondences are there, and I, I don't really begin to understand them. But See, the, the colors of these curtains, blue, blue-gray, purple and red correspond to the colors of these smokes. What, what you get if you burn an animal and what you get if you burn incense is replicated in the colors. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.